Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease in Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. This is one of our Phantoms podcasts where I'm in discussion with uh, Professor Ben Stenson uh, from the Simpson Centre for Reproductive Medicine in Edinburgh. Uh, my name is Jonathan Davis and I'm a consultant neonatologist in Perth and Western Australia. And uh, this is a quite a wide-ranging discussion as the Phantoms tend to be on preterm brains, resuscitation, intubation. As always, you can get in contact with us by uh, tweeting on our Twitter handle, uh, that's at ADC underscore FM. My own Twitter handle is at Jonathan underscore Davis 3 and Ben's Twitter handle is at Stenson Ben. You can also get in contact via more traditional methods of email and uh, engaging with feedback on the website. Uh, we hope you enjoy the podcast and please, if you have anything that you want to comment on or anything controversial that we've said you don't agree with, please get in touch there. Ben, thanks for having this uh, conversation again. Um, this is the third of our Phantoms uh, conversations and and each time in the, in the journal, there's quite a variety of content that we can discuss. Uh, we're going to start a little bit with the preterm brain uh, and initially thinking about what was coined in the editorial as encephalopathy of prematurity. This is a study from Ohio in the United States looking at MRI findings um, and, and really some interesting structural uh, correlations uh, in the preterm population. Yes, so I found this study very interesting and the editorial that goes with it is very good too. The authors here were looking at more sophisticated analysis of brain structure in former preemies and uh, looking at the correlation of different degrees of structural brain maturation and growth with later Bailey 3 scores. And um, showing that quite apart from the structural lesions that people focus on early in the clinical course, when we're looking for germinal matrix hemorrhage and its associations and also um, periventricular leukomalacia. Um, Quite apart from that, the preterm infant experiences a dismaturation of their brain consequent from prematurity. And uh, it's a very serious oversimplification to think about babies as having what you might put in inverted commas as normal scans meaning not showing any of these structural lesions, uh, because we know that many of these babies will still have later problems on follow-up. And there are quite a few studies now of different uh, volumetric and functional and connective uh, um, analyses of MRI, increasingly showing that um, there's more to learn. So the indices in this study explain about a third of the variation between babies in their Bailey 3 scores. But the predictive value for individual babies is very poor. So although these are good biomarkers for population brain growth and development and may be useful in helping us to understand our future interventions, they won't be able to be used, at least not presently, by clinicians to provide prognostic information to families. I think they're still of value as biomarkers, though, because uh, we have to wait 20 years to learn about the full effects of brain growth and development on uh, well-being in our preemies. And that's far too long 
if we're to analyze the effects of changes in our treatments on outcome. Um, we, we need earlier biomarkers. Absolutely. And um, these, uh, as you said, this kind of paper is useful to look at what happens with the preterm brain from a population point of view, but actual individual prognostication is still some way off. But I suspect that there's been more development from a radiological or imaging point of view compared to what we could pick up on ultrasound scan. Definitely, yes. And this is only one example. And um, there are other studies looking at how well connected different areas of the brain are and, and so on. And David Edwards refers to this subject area and uh, he uses the term coined by Joseph Volpe to describe this dismaturation of the brain as encephalopathy of prematurity. It's something I hadn't heard before, but certainly um, kind of encapsulates, I think, forgive the pun, what's going on in the preterm brain. And um, certainly I find it particularly interesting in that we, we think about certain scans as being normal or not normal, but looking at the sophisticated image analysis techniques that seem to be developing all the time, I suspect that what we look at as being normal or, or abnormal is just uh, there are unknown unknowns about what we can class as normal or what is different because we are using our eyes rather than using complex mathematical algorithms to determine the differences between the scans. I agree. And we also fall into the trap of allowing parents to equate what you might call a structurally normal scan in terms of absence of hemorrhage or periventricular leukomalacia with the expectation of a normal outcome. And yet we already know that that isn't a valid conclusion to reach. Absolutely. And I think we're still quite early in the journey with MRI and what it can tell us. Um, so on to um, the DRIFT study, or DRIFT-10, as I believe it's called. And this is an interesting in so much that the DRIFT trial, just for people who don't necessarily know it in detail, was a, a study of, of drainage irrigation and fibrillinic therapy, I think published in Pediatrics in 2008, um, and collected patients, about 70 or so patients between 2003 and 2006. For those who don't know, this study was stopped early because of secondary bleeding complications, but they've impressively continued to collect data on that cohort and now presented the 10-year follow-up, which continues to, to show good results, Ben. Yes. At the time, it seemed a very invasive treatment to stick the ventricular catheters in and lavage the ventricles to remove the blood and blood products as a relatively early treatment for post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation. Um, but the simple fact is it stood the test of time in terms of being an intervention which brought about a difference. And all clinicians worry terribly when they're looking after babies with post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation about the balance of risks between interventions to lower the pressure in the CSF versus the risks of allowing the pressure to remain. And um, there's a strong um, sense that you need to be doing something, but an anxiety that you might make things worse. And just about everything else that's been evaluated actually has had quite um, disappointing effects. And the underlying science suggests that that may be because it's not simply the pressure you need to worry about. It's the elements of blood and associated 
inflammatory and oxidative processes as that material seeps into the brain and that perhaps washing this stuff out is as or more important than the later effects of the pressure. The trouble is, of course, that it's still an invasive treatment. It hasn't been widely introduced. So there's a lot of work to do in working out where to go forward with this treatment. But in the intervening decade, we haven't seen other treatments that give us um, grounds for optimism that there's an easier way to do it. Absolutely. And this treatment would require some careful evaluation. Um possibly in some more babies um, and possibly um, some evaluation of how to actually introduce it within the modern NHS. Um, It is a, like you say, terribly invasive procedure, but it it is showing some benefit, but how the right babies get to the right treatment in the right hands, I suspect, at the right time is probably the, the, the challenge for this one. Yeah, it was a modest sized study And it was stopped early. And uh, so there isn't a very precise estimate of the treatment effect. And probably more research is needed of that treatment effect, as well as then thinking about how it would be rolled out in a small number of specialist centres. So it's a a big project. But um, the lack of effective alternatives means that it's got to be looked at. Absolutely and I I suspect the safety aspect is something that needs to be carefully considered as well um, prior to introduction and it's probably important also to say that this paper is one of the open access papers that are in the journal so it's free to access. Um, The one phantom that struck me as as being very interesting was the You've entitled it chest compressions, but um, I'll give you the full title as the suboptimal heart rate assessment and airway management in infants receiving delivery room chest compressions, a quality assurance project. This is from both some authors in Norway. And it's a very interesting study in that it, it shows perhaps the lack of accuracy in initiating chest compressions. An interesting comparison, Ben. We're taught on every resuscitation course that we go on that the imperative in newborn infant stabilization is to establish infective ventilation and that bradycardia presents a failure to establish effective ventilation or persisting bradycardia and that we shouldn't use chest compressions until effective ventilation has been established. Um, No matter how many people, when they find themselves in a situation of a baby who's not responding to their efforts. The panic that sets in, the imperative to do something, very frequently does mean that chest compressions get included in what's been happening. And when you review the cases in clinical discussion, you're often left with a feeling that the problem was just ineffective ventilation all along. And this paper really just provides some to support that because they captured these episodes on video and it's an extraordinary study that that captured 29 episodes of newborn resuscitation where chest compressions were given and they found that it was only in six of those 29 cases that they felt that the clinical information that they could obtain from the videos enabled them to say that the chest compressions were needed 
and this included a child who got compressions without having their heart rate assessed, others who had heart rates over 60 when the compressions were started, and then a large number who were not receiving effective ventilation. So it doesn't tell us anything that our educators haven't been telling us for years, but it proves it. Of course. And some of the things that obviously people do in the heat of the moment when looking back on these videos is extraordinary. And I suspect uh, that kind of video monitoring, which has been studied by a number of people, is an interesting way of reviewing uh, resuscitation, but obviously not the main thrust of this, but certainly throws up some very interesting findings. Looking at the next study from the Netherlands and the use of propofol, this looked like a fairly decent attempt to try and uh, find a dose of propofol for a neonatal uh, intubation, but was stopped early as the primary outcome was only reached in in 13 patients. Does this really put, propofol has been sort of um, considered for quite some time. Does this put the final nail in the coffin for propofol, do you think, in the preterm population? The outcome measure that they defined as their adverse outcome being hypotension um, is a proxy measure. It's something that might give rise to concern, but the consequences of that are at least highly uncertain. I I think it it illustrates in part the, the big difficulty we have with the whole issue of intubation, analgesia and sedation, because we feel a duty of care to give it, but there isn't a single regimen that has been prospectively evaluated in a way that satisfies you that it's a good regimen in terms of the overall balance. And perhaps it's a a question that's too difficult to answer and that it's comparative studies of different ages, but they would need to be quite large. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this, the main question I had when I read this paper was what were the um, age ranges and these infants were between 25, nearly 26 weeks and 30 weeks. So it was a a decent preterm population, but not necessarily a a huge number of preterms. And um, yeah, these studies are still very important to find what range of medications are appropriate to be used in this population. A mean blood pressure below your corrected gestational age or postmenstrual age um, isn't a rare observation. And there's plenty of data that well babies without particular problems aren't necessarily in trouble simply because of that. Uh, It's a proxy measure and obviously if we're intubating and ventilating babies we're worried that they will experience distress but also that the stress of the procedure will have a a result of giving them harmful permanent adverse outcomes. So the thing that we need to know really is the relative strengths and weaknesses of different regimens on the effects of more important outcomes. But um, the difficulty of doing neonatal trials in relation to emergency interventions is not to be underestimated. So it'll be a long time before we get the kind of data we need. Yeah, I would say so. Um, And the last uh, paper uh, for the Phantoms discussion is another uh, study from the Epicure cohort. This is Epicure 1 we're talking about, isn't it, Ben? This is the first Epicure study. Yeah. Um, So this is looking at quite quite long-term data into early adulthood, up to about 19 years. Yes, the Epicure studies have spanned most of my career in neonatology. And... um, 
we're talking about these little 22 to 25 weekers born in 1995 and now followed up to adulthood. And um, this cohort studies produce so much valuable information about them. Of course, in the intervening time, there's been a huge change, not only in the outcomes, but in the treatments and the survival of these most immature infants is greatly increased now. We've got all of this uh, change in practice happening worldwide in relation to the care of 22, 23 weekers. And we are going to need more cohort studies like Epicure to take us forward. But again, on the theme of the first paper we discussed, 20 years is a long time to wait to find out how they do. And all of these biomarkers that have developed since the first Epicure cohort give us an opportunity of respectively evaluating them too. So there's lots of exciting research opportunities. Yeah, and I suspect uh, this population of babies in 1995 were fed, um, what nutrition they got um, will obviously have an effect on their metabolic outcomes in later life and up to, to 19. Um, it's a very interesting uh, piece of work. And like you say, more of it is required, certainly in the, in the modern era, to try and uh, to determine how the current crop of preterm infants will uh, how that will affect their their growth into to adulthood and how that affects the adult population of, of this cohort in terms of their you know their their metabolic and probably their cardiovascular health yes i agree okay well thank you ben for again another interesting discussion with always a wide range of of topics um to to discuss in phantoms um if anybody wants to uh, have uh, further discussion, the Twitter handle for uh, archives disease of in childhood fetal neonatal edition is ADC underscore FN. I believe Ben, yours is at Stenson Ben, and mine is uh, at Jonathan underscore Davis three. Um, we got some good feedback uh, about this format uh, from the, the last time we had the discussion and um, this format will continue for the time being. So thank you, Ben, for the discussion and thanks everyone for participating. We look forward to your feedback. Mm-hmm.